0: Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast, particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know, someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up, reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school, like I am, drop me an email detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and take care. You know we love a good Roman numeral here on Detoxicity and this episode's guest is trumpeter and vocalist Benny the III. Uh, This is actually our second attempt at a conversation. I experienced some audio gremlins the first time around, and Benny was gracious enough to do this a second time. Uh, Benny is based in NYC. He's originally from Pittsburgh, uh, which has been the home base of several of our guests over the uh, couple of years we've been doing this. He comes from a musical family. His father, grandfather, and his sister are all musicians. His mom is a professor of music theater, and if they have pets, I bet they sing too. Benny has a lot to say about the life of a musician and how that affects his personal life and his mental health. Uh, we also talk about him being a relatively young person in what's considered an older person's musical genre. Um, there's not a lot of y- uh, young jazz musicians out there. Uh, we talk about fashion aesthetics and looking the part for being a jazz musician and a crooner. And we go deep about the increasingly progressive politics of the world and how that has affected how Benny sees himself. So here's BB3, y'all. Check them out.
1: This is jazz trumpeter vocalist Benny the third, originally from Pittsburgh, PA, went to music school in New York City, currently reside kind of freelancing, one-man show, traveling the world, playing clubs and festivals and putting out music and trying to make a name for myself out here in this crazy music business.
0: Indeed. So... I'm going to try to reconstruct (laughs) what I asked you initially. Obviously, music tastes have changed. Times have changed. Whereas jazz was considered an, an art form or a musical style along the same lines as pop, maybe back in the 50s and 60s. And then even through the 70s, 80s and 90s, jazz is a really niche genre now. And I feel like when most people think jazz, and I'm not part of this because I am old, A lot of people think jazz, they think older. And you're a younger cat and you are fully immersed in that world. So, what was it that drew you to jazz? Were you
1: like seven year old Benny Benak the third, wanting to gig and play and all that stuff? Yeah, I mean, it does seem like a common theme in a lot of my colleagues, a lot of my peers, that there was someone that broke through the interference broke through the white noise and showed them an album or got them hooked on it if they started young. And in my case, it's really easy because my family's musicians. So my dad is a tenor player. His dad, my grandfather was a trumpet player. My mom's a singer. They met on a gig. So I was super young and just like listening to jazz nonstop, which is not always typical. But I will say in a lot of the young people that are accomplishing things at a young age in the music, it's almost always because a parent got them into it or they had a really incredible educator. Their band director in high school gave them kind of blue and made them switch from electric bass to upright bass or whatever. You almost have to have someone go out of their way to show you this music because, like you said, you're not seeing it necessarily on the first scroll of YouTube or TikTok or whatever if you're a young person. And a lot of what me and... Some of our friends that you and I know that are also in this age group trying to break through with this music, that's a lot of what we're trying to do is how can we get this music to touch people that use TikTok and not CD players? Hey, no hating on people who use CD players, man. Hey, I'm about to mail out my new record in June. (laughs) I'm about to mail out a lot of CDs, so I hope somebody (laughs) uses them.
0: (laughs) Not a lot of people do, but people still do. When you were... A young buck, when you were a teenager, did you ever turn on MTV and see, I don't know, an sync video and be like, maybe I should do that instead?
1: Well, I mean, I feel like there's a balance in music between music that's considered like high art music and then more commercialized music, right? And even within each genre, you have this spectrum of artists that fall along that. And I will say... It maybe wasn't in sync so much in my case, but it might definitely be more Michael Buble or Harry Connick Jr. Or even someone who's not necessarily a jazz singer. He's more of a contemporary pop singer like Josh Groban. I got to tour with him Mm -hmm. a little bit when I was young and seeing this guy who's singing show tunes. And it's kind of like pseudo opera, but really just like easy listening commercial pop. And he's playing with an orchestra for ten thousand people. I'm like, wow, this is pretty cool. I'd I'd like to play for ten thousand people with an orchestra behind me. That sounds fun. So I, while I was studying all of the most artistic, the richest, deepest jazz music that is really only digested by super diehard jazz fans and other jazz musicians, I spent my time studying that music to master it. But then I also have always had one foot in in the lane of being an entertainer and like, hey, I'd love to be on Broadway. Hey, Harry Connick Jr. was a judge on American Idol. That looks fun. (laughs) Hey, I would love to be in movies like Frank Sinatra. So I'm not your typical New York City jazz cat that's scowling all the time on stage. That's really serious about the music and thinks everything that's the littlest bit sort of accessible is automatically corny. I have leaned into that. And my whole mission statement behind that is you got to meet people in the middle. And I want everybody my age and everybody, the generation below me and you, I want them to get the same joy and fun that I feel when I play jazz music and I listen to jazz music. And I feel like you got to dip people's toes in. but You can't go straight into like crazy interstellar John Coltrane for a crowd of people on a date in a cocktail bar in New York. You got to ease them in. Maybe you give them a little on Rose. Maybe you play fly me to the moon. Maybe you do something they can grasp onto that. And then once you have them, then you can take them and lead them and say, all right, well, now we're going to play something a little bit more left of center. And I trust that you're going to follow me.
0: Right. It's funny. You mentioned sort of what I have historically called jazz snobbery and it Makes me think of this story from when I first started working in the music business 30 years ago. One of the first people that I worked with was Jonathan Sanborn, who is Dave Sanborn's kid. Right. And we were working in a record store together and he worked in the jazz department. And all of the other people in the jazz department would just give him shit all the time because his dad was a commercial pop musician. And I've always kind of had that idea in my head, rightly or wrongly that particularly when it comes to jazz and classical music, there is this level of disdain that a lot of the musicians and fans of the music have for music that might appeal to a younger crowd, whether it's like Winton with hip hop or these guys with the David Sanborns and Kenny G's, not to tie those two together, but with the more commercially successful pop or R&B oriented jazz musicians or fusion musicians, there's always been either there's a sellout aspect to it or there is a, we're on this level, and the pop musicians are kind of on this level thing. Because this is now 30 years ago. I wonder how much of that you still see in your travels.
1: Yeah, it's a tale as old as time that happens in every genre and every musical world. It's trying to compare each other or one another or, you know, believe that they're very specific subgenres. It's almost like a thing with religion where everybody's like, well, yeah, all the other like 400 big gods up in the sky anyone that follows that religion is wrong but mine is definitely the one that's up there in the sky mine's the real one it's right. like people that play like early 1920s 30s new orleans traditional style jazz and like they grow out their mustache and they wear suspenders and they talk like that and they transcribe big spiderbeck some of those guys might turn their noses up at the guy that's playing sonny rollins sonny stitt eternal triangle tune and then the guy that's playing that bebop stuff looks at what robert glasper is doing with hip-hop music and he's over at the blue note for a month selling it out and they think that he's being jived so it's like every little click in the cafeteria looks at the other ones and was trying to poke holes in their shit and for me and the musicians that i've gotten close with the people that are my friends we're all the outliers We're like the kid in high school that wasn't a popular kid, but he has friends and a bunch of the different cliques. So I just love every period of jazz music. I love every era of the music. And I want to be the most consummate, well-rounded musician that I can. So yeah, I want to transcribe Louis Armstrong. If I get called to play a gig at a swing dance convention and everyone's playing early jazz music from New Orleans, I want to know that. I also want to be able to hang at Smalls and people are playing the music of McCoy Tyner. I want to be able to hang on that. And I also want to be able to go play in the horn section for an R&B singer that's playing at Rockwood and was coming out of RH Factor or other different styles of being in a horn section and knowing the difference between the horn section lines in James Brown music versus the horn section lines in... Frank Sinatra big band chart. They're right. just all these different musical languages. And I don't know why everybody feels like they have to be so tribal about it. And they have to pick one and be like, I do this. And all the other ones are stupid. I just right. always wanted to work. I just wanted to have gigs. So if I can kind of play everything at least a little bit competently, then theoretically, I'll be able to pay my rent. That's kind of where it stemmed from. And then the further along I went, I was like, oh, I actually love this. I love the variety. I love playing with different musicians all the time. I love being challenged. And guess what? Audiences love that too. Audiences love not the same texture for an hour and a half. Not the same sure. thing. They love like, oh, is there a special guest? Oh, now there's a saxophone. Oh, now they're doing a song with like a pocket groove. Oh, and now it's a piano player playing stride. And I love that. Some critics and some musicians and some people may say that you're diluting it by trying to encapsulate all these different styles, but... To me, that's my musical identity. I love all of these different styles, so I'm going to find a way to like jam them all on one album or jam them all into one set, and I'm just going to let people digest it the way they do. It's not going to be for everyone, but I feel like it's going to be for a lot of people.
0: That's dope. I've interviewed a lot of musicians, and I don't know if I've asked this specific question before. What do you get out of performing?
1: Wow, that is a good question. Well, I've said many times in my life the best feeling you can get with your clothes on basically is playing (laughs) great music in a great room with a great audience with great people. And it gets pretty close to that other feeling. I think maybe like the best sex versus the best gig. It's close. It's a toss up. But definitely a good gig is better than bad sex, I would say. So it's close. <laughs> I mean, Benny, um,
0: there's lots of things better than bad sex.
1: That's very true, man. It's v- absolutely true. We would all choose like, a million IHop things. Like is better than bad sex. Yeah, honestly, I was thinking food. <laughs> yeah, immediately. But I've been blessed to have moments in my life where you close your eyes and you take a mental snapshot of this moment and you're like, want to remember how it feels. The first time I'm in Europe and here I am in Amsterdam and it's three in the morning and there's all these young people hanging out smoking cigarettes and I'm playing this Kenny Garrett tune and the energy's amazing and I just want to bottle this up. It's like, this is what I live for. This is what I was put on the earth for is this exact feeling. And those moments are like you're watching yourself from above. It's like an out-of-body experience. Mm. It's so incredible, but those moments are reliant on a lot of things lining up. Not only does the band have to be great and all on the same page, you also have to have the audience. Their energy has to be You whip up this energy cycle where the band is giving energy and the audience is giving it back. And that's how you get a magic night. And even on the nights where all that doesn't work out, to finish our analogy, even on the nights where it's a bad gig, it still is better than not making music with people. So I get a lot. My spirit is fulfilled. I get joy, happiness, all the things that keep me from getting too dark, I get when I'm on the bandstand. and it's also the idea of people saying giving a gift is better than receiving. The greatest pleasure that I get is knowing that the people in the audience are enjoying it. And I don't think that's true of every jazz musician. I think a lot of jazz musicians play music for themselves, for sure. other jazz musicians. And I mean, I want it to sound good. I want it to be killing. I want other jazz musicians not to talk shit on the solo I took. But I also want the other people in the room to like feel like their money was well spent and whatever they did that week to buy a ticket to come sit down and buy two drink minimum and see me play. I want them to have a good time too, because I need them. We all need them to have the best, to have those indelible moments that you close your eyes and can remember. Everyone has to be on the same page, you know? Do you feel like it's something you were called to do? I had somebody recently explain
0: that they felt like they were called into their profession.
1: Well... I think in many ways, it was written in the stars just because of my upbringing and being a third generation jazz musician. So the environment that I grew up in, you talk about privilege. I mean, first things first, I was upper middle class in Pittsburgh, great school district. I was able to start band. There was trumpet in my hands before band even started in school because I played my grandfather's cornet. Mm. So I got such a head start. I was ge- being exposed to jazz music. I was getting all of these albums at home when I was five years old. And so I had every opportunity to you know, soak up the music. And yeah, I had to be interested in it, which I was. I soaked it up. But I had this weird feeling of growing up, being in junior high, and my mom is trying to get me to take AP science or whatever. And I'm 10 years old, and I'm like, mom come on ap science what are we talking about (laughs) we already know i'm going to be a professional jazz musician so the music conservatories don't look at sat scores anyway so what are we doing here we all know what i'm going to be doing which i kind of say it is a joke but it is true you have these talented people you go to high school with they don't declare a major in college and they're generally smart but they're not like i'm really passionate about this and Then you kind of go out of school, you get your first job and you do it for a few years. You don't like it. Then you switch careers and do another job for a few years. Then maybe your third job sticks and you're like, oh gosh, this is what I love. I love doing this. I never had to go through any of that. I was nine years old and I was like, yep, I'm going to travel the world playing jazz concerts, singing and playing trumpet. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this is what I was meant to do. So there was never a moment of, I want to be
0: a school teacher. I want to be a a lawyer i want to be it was
1: just straight up you knew there there may have been a moment where i fantasized about being a professional athlete but i think the world quickly crashed any of those dreams by the time junior varsity level (laughs) happened were you gonna be a football player oh no i quit football in like teeny type football i think i made it to sixth grade or something at football and the last year i played football I was so indecisive about doing it that I didn't get the equipment in time. So it was before the day of the first practice. My mom had to drive me to like play played again sports where you get used secondhand gear. Oh, wow. And I got the last pair of shoulder pads, the last helmet. The shit didn't fit me or anything. And I think we had to do an Oklahoma drill, which is where basically two people just line up eight feet across from each other and slam into each other. And I did that drill, and the other kid was 8th grade. I was in 7th grade. He was bigger than me. And I just got my bell rung. I got popped so hard. <laughs> Couldn't air. wind knocked out of me. I was just right. like, wind knocked out of you. <gasps> and I think I walked off the field in the middle of the practice, and I went straight to the parking lot and said to my mom, all right, I'm done. Wow. No, No more football. I realized my body was meant for other things, not sports.
0: <laughs> I mean, we're the same size just about. So the idea of – us as grown ass men on a football field, I just feel like we would get hurt pretty badly.
1: Well, me, me, and you have talked a lot about playing pickup ball, and I love playing basketball too. But I had to make a business decision. We've talked about this too. Like a few years ago, I was playing in Columbia because uh, I live in that area. Manhattan School of Music's right up the road from Columbia. I've always lived right. in West Harlem, and I was playing in Columbia with a football player who was just messing around. And we both went up for a rebound and I was just like a fly that this guy, I don't even think he knew I was there, but he just elbowed me right in the mouth and my tooth went through my lip. I couldn't play trumpet for a month, man. And thank God that happened when I was still in college and I I wasn't like needing to play trumpet to pay my rent. If I couldn't gig for a month, I'd be in the unemployment line, man. So I had to be like, we need to dial it back. My days of being gym class hero are over. Can't fuck with the moneymaker. Dude, it's true. (laughs) As much as it pains me, I can't go hard in the paint anymore.
0: I I feel that. You mentioned a little while ago music getting you through the dark moments, and I I'd want to touch on that just because people from the outside might see you doing gigs and you're always flying somewhere, and I think there would be a certain level of envy that someone who does not have your gig might have about your gig. But I mean, I know from doing what I do and being where I am, that it's a much more difficult life than it may look on social media. So first of all, you're always busy. You're one of the busiest fucking people I know. So how do you handle the being busy and then all the traveling and all that other stuff?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I just taught two lessons in my apartment before this. And I say to young people all the time, you have to have a certain temperament, a certain constitution. Like this life is not made out for everyone. You can't be that precious and that delicate and make it out here because it's brutal. And I'm very glad that we are coming up in a time now where the cultural buzzword of mental wellness, that's a thing. And there's not as much of a stigma attached to that. And an athlete can say, hey, I'm sitting out the rest of the year because I got to get my mind together. And it's not like, well, hey, he didn't blow out his knee. So why isn't he on the court? You look at Simone Biles like or you look at Osaka or any of these athletes on the highest level that had the courage to acknowledge the mental side of things and it's the same thing for anyone that's a high achiever in their field there's a lot of pressure and especially in a musician in a freelance life like yeah I'm exceedingly busy I'm always traveling and I've seen it with people where it's like If you're the type of person that gets really irritable and cranky and you're not fun to be around when you're not getting a lot of sleep, you really got to work on that because (laughs) you're going to be in a lot of hotel lobbies with promoters and presenters and travel people and other people in the band. If you're a drag to be around in the van at seven in the morning on no sleep, that's going to prevent you from having a gig that could be really fruitful financially, artistically fulfilling If you struggle with things like that, it's going to be an uphill battle. So that's something where I'm always checking in with my friends. I'm always talking to people. And I had a situation where a buddy of mine, we were on a gig together not too long ago. And I kind of like looked over at him in the middle of the gig. And I was like, is something off with this cat? And he sounded great, was still playing through the gig. And then on the set break, he came over. He was like, man. I had a panic attack in the middle of that song. That's why I didn't Mm. take a solo. And I was like, what? Are you kidding, man? You sounded great. You look great. What's the problem? And he was like, no, it's been cropping up lately. I just have a lot going on with my dad and the girl that I'm dealing with. And when I get on stage, my heart starts racing. And I just felt like I couldn't catch my breath. And I'm working too much, man. I got to cancel my gigs this week. I need to take some time off. I need to just chill. And that kind of thing, maybe in the past, would have been looked down upon. There's this sort of like toxic energy of what? You got to be tough. You got to take every right. gig. Don't complain. This toxic productivity. But anyone that that guy would have talked to about that situation, I think all the people in our circle in my community would have been like totally, totally understand. And in point of fact, he texted the people he had for gigs that week. And it's not like he made something up. He didn't lie and say that his dog died. He was like, look, I've just overloaded my plate. I need to rest. I need to take some deep breaths and figure some stuff out before I get myself back in the meat grinder running around to a rehearsal and a gig every day. So I think that's super important. And if I have a superpower more than anything that I was born with musically talented wise or anything like that, if I had a superpower, it's that I feel like my mental comportment is really strong. And that's not something that I think I worked on. That's not something that I practiced or anything like that. I think it was kind of like my upbringing and staying grounded. And if I played gigs with my dad and my uncle growing up and I finished the gig and I wanted to go over and get a ginger ale or talk to some cute girl, but I wasn't there helping wrap up the cables and tear down the mic stands and tear down the drum set and help load it into the truck. I was getting yelled at. So that stuck with me. And a lot of places that I travel to, a lot of promoters, presenters, tour managers and stuff, they're like, wow, you're so easy to work with. Everyone else comes on this tour and they're just bitching about they want to go to this place for food or they have to have this in the green room or whatever. And they're like, you're so easygoing. And I, the way I feel about it is like, well, what do I have to really be complaining about? I'm doing exactly what I want. I'm traveling the world. I'm playing music. I'm having a blast doing it. Why should I have a bad attitude about anything?
0: Right.
1: So like. Even the toughest shit, it's like, all right, we're going to take a 12-hour flight to Moscow. And then when we get there, we'll have a half hour. And then we got to take a 12-hour train overnight to Kiev, to Ukraine. And then the tour starts there. And I'm just like, okay, I'll do it. I agreed to the gig. I'm going to do it. And I do kind of pride myself on that, too. I've worked with enough people that are a little precious on the road or with the grind. And I feel like I'm lucky that I've been able to always good head on my shoulders, stay balanced, and stay positive.
0: I mean, that's a real gift. And not everyone is, by virtue of biology, even able totally. to do that necessarily. I mean, I some days you just wake up in the morning, you're like, today's not the fucking day. Or your body tells you today's not the day. And it, right. it shapes the next however many hours in your life. So I definitely feel the uh, relative effortlessness Of that for you but that you're very fortunate
1: for that yeah like i said man i think even that above all else like oh yeah i have a great ear i have perfect pitch or any musical shit like that i think that makeup where i always have been in a good place been grounded but takes a lot for me to fall off track that's the greatest gift I, i could have and the thing that i am really encouraged by continuing on this notion that as a society, the blinders are turning off from this stuff. Is that in the past, you'd have someone like Bud Powell, who would be an eccentric cat and might have been dealing with some shit. And the way that people thought they had to deal with it was put him in an insane asylum and then put him in shock therapy and just start frying his brain. And that was the primitive, that was what they thought you should do with someone that was going through something. And I have numerous friends that have been at their lowest point undiagnosed manic bipolar cycle in the hospital lost as far down as you could go in that arena and because people are more apt to seek out help and to see therapists and because there is more understanding of medication. I have friends that are diagnosed bipolar and through a combination of sometimes it's medication sometimes they don't like the way the medication makes them feel so they're just going to be monitoring themselves with a network of people that they trust their therapists those people are thriving now and these are people that in an older era of jazz music people might have just been like this cat he's crazy he just flies off the handle for a while we just love him he's one of those eccentric guys right no it's like you said it's biology man some people can't help it and it's going to be a pendulum and you got to try and balance it, smooth it out as much as you can. And I have so much respect for my friends that are dealing with that on top of everything else and still thriving.
0: Yeah. Along that same tack, I mean, you think about Coltrane, you think about all of these musicians who self-medicated and that ultimately led to them not being on earth as long as they maybe should have been on earth. Yeah. And I, I think this is true for musicians, no matter what you play that the temptation is always there to drink or smoke or inject or do whatever. How do you avoid doing any of that shit to excess?
1: Well, man, everybody has their vice one way or another. Sure. And I would say I never felt that drawn to drinking or smoking or drugs. To your point, where maybe people that get really deep down those roads are because the way they feel when they are using that substance – It's favorable to how they feel when they are sober. So I never had to deal with that. And the other reason that I think a lot of those dependencies start for people is like you're on a jazz gig. Everyone on the set break is going outside to smoke a cigarette. All your friends, everybody's out there. And it's a high school thing of peer pressure. I've been in the back room at a jazz club and a joint goes around and I don't really smoke weed. I don't love it. But all of a sudden, if Roy Hargrove is handing me a joint, I'm going to have a couple hits. Of course, I... Always felt very secure in myself even when I was younger. I didn't feel like I needed to fit in where I wasn't welcome or feel like I had to drink or I had to smoke to be with the in crowd. So it never happened for me when I was younger, which is good. I kind of avoided that. And I would say I have things that I trouble self-control with. It's just more of the variety of playing blackjack or biting my (laughs) nails or eating junk food than it is doing heroin or drinking whiskey or something all dealing with something
0: right. we're not speaking right now from a Vegas showroom where you've just lost like twenty thousand dollars at a blackjack table so I feel like you're probably okay in that respect unless there's something you're hiding from no there.
1: no yeah it's not that bad I'm smart enough to realize in myself how how much I would love gambling so I really stay away from it for the most part because I know that could be me that is
0: A1 level self-control you've got there.
1: Uh, Yeah, well, working on it.
0: So switching gears a little bit, what's really funny is the first time I met you, I knew social media you and obviously I knew of you through mutual friends. And on social media, you're always very sharp, which isn't to say you're not sharp outside of social media. But when I met you, it was like your hair's not teased up or whatever. You're not wearing a suit. You're wearing t-shirt and sweats and sneakers. (laughs) Yeah. And you came to do my radio show, and I did a double take. I was like, is this the same guy? You are, which I think is something that might be somewhat exclusive to jazz. You are, when you perform, very well put together. Where did your sense of style come from?
1: Historically, jazz music, it's people paying cover charges in nice clubs, and all the guys that I looked up to were wearing suits. So it's partly that, and it also goes back to... the conditioning I had growing up in a family where playing gigs with my dad, my dad would wear a suit or we're going to play somebody's wedding and everyone's wearing a black suit. And I got in this mindset of I'm going to work, I'm putting a suit on. That's what makes me feel like, all right, I'm in work mode now. And then beyond that, personally, it's like, look good, feel good. I don't think that everybody needs to wear a tie clip and a pocket square and a suit on their <laughs> gigs. It's more like, what do you need to wear on your gig so that you feel like you're killing it the hardest. And in my case, that is like what my home base is. That's sort of my brand. And then that's me internally. And then also from a business perspective, I'm like, what is the brand that I want my music to be about? What's my aesthetic? And I look at other artists and people's brands that I admired. And it's a lot of crooners. I get in this argument with Emmett all the time. Emmett Cohen, who's his, chart, his record's number one on the charts right now. <laughs> he blew up and he's taken over the jazz world and we've argued about what we wear on gigs our whole lives and i always show up in like a nice clean suit and tie and a like pocket square and we have the same tailor actually but like there's always a section when i go to the tailor on the rack of crazy yellow polka dot wild pants, and then like a jacket that is like has nothing to do with that. And I always point to her, like, is that Emmett stuff? And he's like, Senor, Senor, it's crazy, crazy. It's Mr. Emmett, yeah. <laughs> and it's style, and it works for him so well, and it's everything that his music is about. And I always say to Emmett, dude, what my music's like, what my shtick is. Tell me a one crooner that wasn't wearing a suit in the entire history. Did Frank Sinatra ever wear suit separates and like plaid pants and a dark jacket? Did Harry Connick Jr. when he was filling up stadium? did Michael Buble, what is he wearing? That's what I'm going for. So that's the gig. That's the outfit that people associate with that. So of course that's what I'm going to gravitate towards. That's really where it comes from is like, I also feel like I'm at a fancy jazz club. People are paying 50 bucks and a two drink minimum. They're spending a lot of money. I don't want to walk out there in a t-shirt. I think that people take the music more seriously. If you look like you're taking yourself seriously, if I look like they should be paying attention, maybe they'll pay attention a little more. And I also feel like when I travel, the thing that I get the most outside of New York around the world is people are like, we felt like we were in New York City tonight. And yes, I think a part of that is the music and the energy, but also a part of it is, yeah, I'm at a bar in Green Bay and everyone else is wearing camo and I'm wearing a suit and tie. Because I'm like, look, this is me. This is a piece of New York coming your way. And I'm here in Green Bay. And I think in my mind, they're more likely to buy a CD because they're like, wow, this guy, he's really taking himself seriously. This is something special. I don't even have a CD player, but I just want to remember this night. So I'm going to support him and spend 20 bucks. So there is a lot of thought behind it. I don't just wear suits for the heck of it.
0: Right. Yeah. The juxtaposition, I, I just thought was from a personal impression standpoint. Again, I expected you to come in with the whole crooner vibe, I guess. And it's oh, just like, yeah, oh, this is
1: regular people. Dude, if I'm not in stage gear, it's just pretty much all gym clothes and jerseys. And I look like a bum all day. <laughs> and then I just put on an immaculate suit at 8 o'clock when I leave the house. But I'm like Mr. Jim Shorts, and then if I'm not on a gig, I dress like a bum.
0: Which, I mean, you're not wearing raggedy-ass shorts and, like, chancletas walking down the street or whatever. (laughs) So Close.
1: I'm kind of like that guy in the middle of winter that's wearing basketball shorts and flip-flops to the bodega to get uh, chopped cheese. That
0: is very much a white person thing, Benny.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I am very much a white person.
0: (laughs) You are very much a white person. (laughs) And I do want to talk about... uh, And maybe this is because you are a younger musician, but one thing I love about you is your social media presence, particularly with the Q&As you've been doing lately, speaking very frankly about politics and race and sexuality in a way that is, I think, uncommon or unusual or unique for a lot of people, a lot of musicians, a lot of jazz musicians. And I feel like the answer to this is probably confidence, but what puts you in a zone where you're able to speak about these things so honestly and openly and without a lot of discomfort or anything like that.
1: Yeah, I think a part of it is where I am at in my life as an artist and as a person, where I think rightfully so, when you're in the up-and-coming youngest part of your career, your job is not to be like the rookie that comes in and is talking at every quiet point in the locker room to make it a sports analogy. It's like (laughs) when I'm apprenticing in older musicians bands, my job is to shut up and listen and observe and see how the old heads are doing it and see how they run a rehearsal and how the tour manager handles the routing of all the things. Also see how people treat one another. Your job when you're younger is to just consume all the information, observe, right? And so I arrived at a point in my career where I'm not An old storied veteran, but I'm also not the young punk coming up. I have been around long enough to where I feel like I have enough experience to have an opinion on things and I have some experience to share for people that are younger that are just getting started because... I'm 32 and I've been in New York for a dozen years. and Such an old man, Benny. Yeah, I know. well, compared to 20-year-olds on Instagram that ask me questions on how do I get a gig in New York? Oh, it's true. So I don't think I would have been that frank and would have had a platform or a reason to whose cares is what I have to say. But I feel like that has happened. And as far as the professional stuff goes, that's why I feel qualified. If someone's asking me like, hey, what's the best thing I should do at a jam session? Or if I want to ra- book a tour... What kind of email should I send? I've sent the wrong email, said the wrong thing at a jam session. So I feel like I am qualified to sort of help out, give guidance to these younger people. And I don't think I would be so open sharing that information if I wasn't in a position where I feel stable and I feel comfortable for myself. So you have to really be secure in order to be comfortable showing other people the way. And we know there are plenty of stories of, you know, Iconic artists and musicians who, for whatever reason, they were paranoid or they didn't want to share with people. They weren't giving away their secrets. But I come from a tradition of like, I've had so many mentors and teachers and people that did that for me. And I wouldn't be in the position I'm in if those people hadn't have told me which person to email or how to book this gig or whatever. I had people that did it for me. So it's very much like, pay it forward. And that covers the professional side of it. And then, A lot of it too, just talking about being at a certain station in my life, because a lot of the questions on on the Q&A and a lot of things people wonder about, God knows why, I don't know, but it's more questions, whether it's stuff about, oh, who are you dating right now? Or it's my sexuality, or it it could be any variety of things about not business related, but more like personal related. And I don't think I would have the, whatever you want to call it, the confidence or the the willingness to share those things if it wasn't precisely at a point in my life where I felt like I had a grip on those things. And having gone through various journeys, having had situations where I was trying to define my own sexuality, having situations where I put my foot in my mouth or was insensitive to a colleague who was black and called me out on it and having to come to grips with that and face that. Having moments like that were like things that got me to this point where I am today as a fully formed adult, where I'm like, if someone out there is brave enough to ask me this question, they must be struggling with something. And I went through that. And if I can make their journey 3% more expedient because of my answer, then I'm just gonna give it to them straight, you know?
0: And to me, that's so dope. I talk a lot about modeling (laughs) behavior. And this is a longer story, but I had someone recently, a good friend who I've known for a long time, tell me that they thought about dating me, but they were like, you're too public, you're too open. And I, I get the need that some people have to maybe not be vocal about their politics, not be vocal about their sexuality, blah, 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 not be vocal about their mental health status, whatever it is. But there's two things there. A, for me, it's fucking freeing. And I love the fact that I don't have to make up stories for anybody. And then the other part of that is modeling behavior. When you stand in your truth, there's going to be three people or 300 people or 3,000 people who feel empowered to tell their truth because you kicked the door down for them. Or push. You didn't have to kick the door down. You can push the door open a little bit.
1: Right. You know, No, I I totally agree with you on that, man. I think, if anything, I've been more emboldened by that when I do give an answer like that. And it's an anonymous thing, but then somebody will come in my DMs and be like, thank you, I look up to you so much, and it helped me so much, I feel seen, or whatever it is. And that is what you're saying. That is really what makes it worthwhile. That's why I bother to keep doing those.
0: And it's great that we live in a world now, and we're in a place where you being that open isn't going to have an adverse effect on your career. And if anybody talks shit to you, I'll pop them in the fucking face.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, it's true, man. It's very easy to get caught up in the day-to-day of the destruction of our planet and the denigration of our society and all of the horrible atrocities that happen every day. And if you open up the news app on your phone and you want to doom scroll, it's very easy to do that. So Um, easy. And I care about all of those things dearly, as we all do. But I always try... Zoom out and have the perspective that I, I am an optimist, but I really do believe that as two, two steps forward, three steps backward is incrementally of progress as it is. I do believe in general that society slowly just becomes more accepting and liberal. It's a slog, it's a fight. And there's five things that happen that make you lose hope. But in general with each generation, People are able to live their truth a little bit more. People are a little bit more tolerant of people that come from somewhere else or different background or don't look like them. And I feel very fortunate, like you said, I don't think there was room for any coloring outside of the lines. Anything that wasn't the way that society strictly defined it for a lot of people, for a lot yeah. of artists. But that, is,
0: but that isn't a binary. Right.
1: Even. And a lot of artists before me and wouldn't have had that option to be that open about it right and i think that's great and connecting with my younger audience and i look at the generation below us and i see how open and freeing and those people it's just the difference between like 21 year olds and even older than millennial gen x boomers to 20 year olds it's like they're aliens it's night and day and we're in the middle so still we see our parents and and we see the progress that our generation made and i really think like we laid the groundwork for all these gen z kids to just be like totally they don't give a fuck they are so open about everything and like they don't even bat an eye at it because that's the world that they grew up in so i love that good i hope they keep doing that and i hope their kids are even more so that's the hope
0: so i have one more question to ask you and i
1: don't want you to answer it the way that i think you're going to answer it (laughs) i don't know how i'm going to answer it but i'll try not to you
0: are you are from pittsburgh i have plenty of great friends close friends from pittsburgh And I've been there a bunch of times. I love that town. It's a great place. What is the most Pittsburgh thing about Benny Benac the third? And you cannot say the Steelers.
1: Oh, Okay. So yeah, I would have definitely said sports. I would have definitely reverted to sports right away. Because you haven't Uh, said yins once. Yeah, well, I've worked hard. I've conditioned (laughs) my, my Pittsburghese, which like for those of you that don't know, they do a competition every year. It's like a March Madness bracket of the ugliest accent in America. And Pittsburgh is the Duke basketball of this every what? year. Every year, Pittsburgh either wins or is in the final four for the ugliest accent in America. Have and these so people I, never been to Boston. Well, the thing is, like Boston, it's so singular, but it's almost like it's charming. People love it. If they hear it, they're like, oh, it's a Boston thing. The Pittsburgh thing. It's just gross. I don't <laughs> even know what it is. When I was younger, people asked if I was from the South. Western Pennsylvania has sort of a Midwestern thing to it, but then right. it's also like West Virginia, Virginia. It also has a Southern thing. It's a weird crossroads. But the most Pittsburgh thing about me, man, man, I won't say sports and I won't say the Steelers, <laughs> but on a tangential way, Pittsburgh is known as a blue collar city, a blue collar culture. The main produce of pittsburgh the reason it's the steelers is because it was the steel mills right right so pittsburgh always is identified with this culture of we're going to put our suit on you know go to work and work hard keep your head down blue collar you know that is the cultural identity of pittsburgh and western pennsylvanians and i think you see that yes in the sports teams like pittsburgh Steelers. (laughs) we're going to be physical we're going to run the ball we're going to play defense that's a blue collar mentality but i was talking before about the reason that I'm not a diva, and the reason that I'm not persnickety on the road is because like, I grew up blue-collar, and just because I'm the guy that's on stage singing the concert, I don't look down on the stagehands that are wearing all black that are moving around the microphones. I'm not talking down to the person that has to take the lunch order and go bring it to the green room, and I feel just as responsible for packing up my music stand and my wireless mic at the end of the concert as anyone else because... That's what Pittsburgh is. Grounded, (laughs) down-to-earth, John Fetterman-type people. And now somebody's going to hire you to
0: do a commercial. There you go. For Pittsburgh. You're going to be the next tourism ambassador.
1: Hey, man, I'd take it.
0: First of all, Benny, I got to thank you for your patience. We did this recording twice, and the first time I messed up. So I thank you for... Letting me take time out of your schedule to do this once again and ask you probably some of the same questions. Although the good thing about waiting a few weeks to these is that I don't remember the questions that I asked, so it felt like a new interview to me. I hope it felt like a new one to you too. Anyway, if you want to follow Benny on social media, you can do so. He is on Instagram and Twitter at bbjazz. Ah, shit, it's supposed to be say bbjazz3. But it's Roman numerals and it's lowercase, so it's actually BB Jazz III. <laughs> so, uh, there you go. Uh, that's Benny on social media. His website is BennyBenackJazz.com. I know he has new music coming out, although at the time that I'm recording this, uh, that has not been released yet. Uh, and if it is, by the time that we publish this episode, I will put it in the show notes. So... Make sure you follow him on social media. His website is BennyBenakJazz.com. If he's playing a show, you can follow him on his website and find out if he's playing near you. I uh, certainly advise you check him out if you get the chance. And uh, thanks again, Benny, for being on the show. Hopefully, next time you're on, we won't mess up the audio. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, Once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, Follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as DetoxPodGuy. Uh, You can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill, or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on, Uh, rate, comment help a brother out uh help us move up in the rankings uh follow me on social media like i said uh, follow our patreon or subscribe to my patreon actually patreon.com slash detoxicity pod you get access to exclusive episodes you get episodes a little earlier than the general public you get a cool ass sticker lots of stuff once again patreon.com slash detoxicity pod quick shout out to calvin williams for providing the music and uh doing his magic on the logo, which was originally designed by Jacob Block. I thank you all for listening. I wish you all the best. Please take care of each other. Till next time. Peace.